book of Galatians. It's a tough passage. And uh, before we look at it, I'd like for us to uh, ask God to open our eyes. As Gina reminded us, it's uh, just good to know that when we look into your eyes, we find acceptance there. Uh, overflowing, never-failing love. That's uh, hard for us to grasp because um, we want so much to try to prove ourselves. We've been taught for so long that we must do something to merit your acceptance. But uh, we pray this morning that you'd open our eyes to see what you have for us to see in this text. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, have talked to a number of you in the past couple of weeks, and some of you find grace very hard to grasp. Uh, We're not used to a world where people give us things without strings attached, without uh, having some angle. Uh, there's understandable cynicism in the old gag about a psychiatrist being someone that uh, will love you for $100 an hour. Uh, we're used to uh, everybody having their hook. There's some reason for any goodness that they show us, and I think grace just overwhelms us. It's hard for us to know how to respond to it, to know how to accept it. And yet, what Paul tells us in Galatians, as a matter of fact, the entire Bible from beginning to end tells us that that's just the way God is. He loves to give. He gives and he gives and he gives. The way we get into a relationship with him is by faith. The way we grow in grace is by faith. And uh, he sees to it that our uh, destiny is fixed and sure and certain, our eternal Eternal life is a gift that's given to us that we don't have to earn the hard way. Unlike uh, Richard Bach's uh, little seagull that could, uh, we don't have to flap our way into uh, godhood. Uh, We become sons of God by faith. That's just something I think that's tough for us to handle. We want to carry part of the load. And then to discover that uh, the New Testament teaches not U-Haul, but he-hauls, is uh, something something new. But it sure is good news. It's good news not to know. uh, It's good news to know that I don't have to earn my salvation the old-fashioned way. Now, this is, uh, as I said, this is a tough passage, verses 13 through uh, 25. Uh, I'm not going to try to to take you through the last few verses. I discovered in thinking through just that section, uh, 13 through 25, that there there's a lot of information that we need to try to grasp, and it and it's hard to understand. One of the problems is that we don't have the background that the Galatians had. They had uh, uh, some years of Paul's teaching, or some months of Paul's teaching, and They had follow-up instruction by some of the other apostles and disciples. Uh, They also knew the Old Testament better than we do. We don't read the Old Testament much. But that was the only Bible they had. They didn't have anything else. 
That was their scripture. And uh, I think in order to understand this verse, you, you have to know a little bit of Old Testament theology, which I'll try to, uh, try to give you this morning. My goal is always to make things as simple as possible, not uh, simpler than possible. But uh, I was speaking to a group of college students years and years ago, and I was sharing the time with another speaker who was a, a, quite a noted scholar. I was a little bit intimidated by him through the whole procedure. And finally, when it was over, he said, Roper, one thing I have to say about you, you have a very simple mind. <laughs> and uh, I think what he meant is that I was trying to make things simple. I took it as a compliment because that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's my goal. Now I want to read uh, beginning with, with verse 13. Oh, I'm sorry, it's 15. I didn't have my glasses on. Uh, I'm going to read 15 through uh, 18, and then uh, I'm going to take you to an Old Testament passage, and then I'm going to come back and read 15 through 18, and I uh, hope you will understand these verses a little better. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Illustration is always worth a thousand words. Paul was an excellent illustrator. Illustrations let in light. I'm convinced people uh, remember my stories and my jokes and my illustrations much better than they remember anything else that I say. Now, here's the example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Now, the word that's translated covenant is also the word for testament, which is also the word for will. Same word in Greek. It's talking about someone's last will and testament. The sort of thing that, that you and I uh, do when we want to be sure that our inheritance is distributed to our family or to those that we want to receive our inheritance. Uh, he's talking about God's last will and testament, as he goes on to say. The promises, that is, the God's last will and testament, was spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Now, here's this argument. Uh, once you ratify a last will and testament, uh, you, people do not arbitrarily add provisions to it. They don't modify it. They don't uh, uh, add codicils. It, it's accepted as it's ratified. That's the law. It's the law today. It was the law in, in Paul's day. And what God wants us to know is that the promises, that is, God's will and testament, which was spoken to Abraham, is still good, still binding. The deal's still on. But it not only was made with Abraham, it was made with us. That's what he means by this parenthetical expression here at the end of verse 16. The scripture does not say into seeds, meaning many people. It was not to Jews who were his descendants alone, but and to your seed, meaning one person, which is Christ. Now, the, uh, the Greek and the Hebrew word for seed is collective, just as it is in English, as well as singular. It can either, either refer to one seed or it can refer to many. Paul is taking it here to refer to one, to Christ. The promise, God's last will and testament was given to Abraham and to his seed, which is Christ. And you and I, by faith, are in Christ. We're the same as Christ. And so the deal was made with us as well. 
Now he goes on. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set, a, uh, set aside the covenant, the will, previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance, the proceeds of the will, what, what we get out of the deal, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it, it's not a promise any longer. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Now, as I said, that's a little difficult for us to grasp because we don't know what Paul is talking about when he speaks of God's last will and testament given to Abraham and to us. So we have to go back into the Old Testament to, uh, to understand what he's saying. Will you turn with me to uh, Genesis 12? Don't worry about our baby. Jesus said, that's one of those little ones that believe on me. Now, uh, in Genesis 11, you have the story of the Tower of Babel. Verse 4, men say, uh, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we make a, may make a name for ourselves. They, uh, men are busily engaged in this do-it-yourself project to get to heaven, get to God. And they are going to build a skyscraper that gets them into God's presence. And we're going to make a name for ourselves, they say. Uh, they describe it in uh, typically grandiose terms with which uh, men always describe their achievements as the ultimate. Uh, men were busy building a city. God was busy building a man. Verse 10. This is the account of Shem. And then you have the line of the Semitic people. that culminates in verse 26 with Terah who after he lived 70 years became the father of Abraham. You understand the argument of chapter 11? Men were in secular society, were, were out busy working on this project to make a name for themselves, to make a reputation for themselves. And God is creating a man, Abram. I, I can't remember a single name of any of the men who worked on this tower. Uh, but I do remember Abram. Abram is a Great man in three religions today. Everybody knows about Abraham. That was God's achievement. He was creating a man. Then what follows is the promise made to Abraham, chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram. <clears throat> Abram is just the short form of Abraham's name. Abraham was the name later given to him. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I'll show you. Uh, as I said last week, he grew up in Ur the Chaldees, uh, very close to where Baghdad is today. And uh, he was a moon worshiper, most likely. God appeared to him, revealed himself to Abraham, and, and made him a promise. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. I will make you into a great nation. Abraham became the father of the Jews. He's also the father of most of the Arabs. But the nation that he's referring to here specifically is the nation of Israel. And I'll bless you. I'll enrich your life. Now, do you remember last week when we talked about Paul's statement in Galatians 3 where he equates justification with the blessing? He quotes this passage and he says, What God promised was justification. You understand what God is saying? To, to Abraham 
I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to make you into a righteous man. I'll make your name great, give you a great reputation, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I'll justify those who uh, take you seriously, is the idea. And whoever curses you, whoever takes you lightly, is, is the word, I will curse Remember last week we talked about uh, the law cursing and, uh, and, and grace blessing. Grace justifies, declares us righteous. The law condemns, declares us guilty. Do you see what he's saying? If we take Abraham seriously, if we take his faith seriously, then we will be declared righteous as Abraham was. If we don't, if we take Abraham lightly, if we take his faith lightly, then uh, we will be declared guilty and all people on the earth will be blessed through you in other words in some way that is not yet revealed God would justify all nations on the basis of Abraham's faith now in chapter 13 you have the story of Abraham and Lot and uh, the, the quarrel that their herdsmen got into and they had to separate and even though Abraham owned the whole land, the promised land, the land we call today Israel, the land of Canaan, that was promised to Abraham as a part of this will and this covenant, this testament. It was Abram's land. But uh, when, this, uh, when this quarrel broke out, Abraham let Lot choose. He could choose the best, and that's exactly what he did. He chose uh, grass, as someone has put it, and and Abraham chose grace. He just cast himself upon the goodness of God, and he let, he let God take care of him. And uh, we're told in verse 14 that the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are, and look north and south and east and west. All that you see I'll give to you and to your seed forever. Now, do you understand what God is doing? He's creating a nation that he will call into being. They will spring from the loins of Abraham, as the Old Testament puts it. And he will plant that people in the land. And out of that people will come one, a little boy someday, that will save the world. The whole world will be justified, will be blessed through Abraham. Now, in chapter 14, you have a story of this uh, uh, Abraham's engagement with four great kings from uh, Mesopotamia, one of whom was uh, none other than Hammurabi, the great lawgiver. Riled up these uh, four kings, put his own life in jeopardy. Uh, he uh, was involved in a raid on these armies in order to rescue his nephew Lot, came back home. He started thinking, what in the world have I done? He could see himself standing beside the campfire some night and, and some uh, Babylonian assassin would take him out with, a, with an arrow from the shot from the darkness. And he, he was frightened. Chapter 15, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield and your very great reward. Abraham says, oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me? What can you reward me with? Since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my state is Eliezer of Damascus. Do you understand Abram's heart? He wasn't worried about his own hide. He wasn't looking out for his own life. He 
He was thinking about the promise. God had promised him that he would have a son and that that son or a descendant of that son would someday save the world. See, he was looking at God's plan to bring salvation to the world. He believed that God was going to bring that son into the world and save the world. You know how many children he had at this point? Zero, none. And if he were to be killed, what would happen to God's plan? God assures him, it's all right. It's all right, Abraham. Verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. That is, uh, your servant, you, you don't need to adopt Eliezer's son. Abraham was always trying to help God out a little bit. And usually when he did, he set God's program back a few years. The word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring, your seed be. Took him out into the night sky and he looked up at the stars and God said, Abraham, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And one of those, one of those will be the seed that will save the world. And Abraham, verse 6, believed the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. All he had was the sheer word of God. And he entrusted himself to it. He believed God. That, remember, is the passage that Paul quotes in Galatians 3 that we talked about last week. Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, you see what he believed in? It wasn't some vague promise of God. It's that someday one of his seed, one of his descendants, would come and save the world. That's what Abraham was preoccupied with, the preservation of that seed. And God said, Abraham, don't worry, I'm going to take care of it. You're going to have a son, and that son is going to bless the world. And Abraham said, I believe. As I said last week, literally he says, amen, I believe, I believe. And uh, the text, uh, the tense of the verb suggests something that was ongoing. He, He was in the habit of believing God. Oh, he had his ups and downs, he had his failures of faith, but in general he was a man who entrusted himself to the, to the faithfulness of, of God. And when God saw that faith, he said, that's my man, that's my man. And Abraham became the friend of God, God's intimate. God walked with him, talked with him, dealt with him with, a, with a, the kind of familiarity that you and I long for. Why? Because he spent his whole lifetime uh, trying, to, trying to work his way to God through effort, self-effort, by keeping the law. No, no, he just, he just believed. So, so on, on the basis of that belief, God ratified the covenant. Now, I don't have time to read 12 through 19 to you, but let me explain what happens here. God condescended to Abraham's level of understanding, as he always does. That's what the incarnation is. It's just God getting down on our level, getting down and dirty. If it happened today, God would uh, go to the stationery store and he would get a, a legal form and he would fill it out and sign it at the bottom. In those days, they didn't do things like that. If they were going to ratify a covenant, they uh, took a number of animals, cut them in half, and separated the halves of the animals, and they walked together through the uh, through the animal th- between the bodies of the, of the animals. Nobody knows exactly what the animal signified. Perhaps uh, it was intended to convey the idea that may this happen to you and me if we break this covenant. We don't know. But but that's the way they, as the idiom puts it, cut a covenant. Uh, covenants were not made, they were cut. And the way they were cut was to divide an animal in half, separate the halves, walk between them. 
But the most significant thing about this story is that Abraham was cut out of the deal. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. The Hebrew word teridima means uh, kind of a coma. In other words, God put Abraham to sleep. The man was tired. He'd been fighting. And uh, he'd had a hard time of it. And God just put him to sleep. In effect, saying, Abraham, you're not even in this deal. I'm going to walk between the animals myself in order to let you know that it all depends on me. See? Now, that was God's last will and testament. And uh, Paul's argument is that he hasn't made any other. See, this is what makes sense out of all the bits and pieces of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not a, a, a homily of um, morals and preachings and uh, stories. That's the way most of us read it. But the core that gives cohesion to the whole Old Testament is this notion of promise. Promise that God has promised. That someday the seed is going to come to save the world. And all, all you need to do is fix on that, on that promise. Now, if you turn to Exodus 20, you'll read about the law. Abraham lived about 2000 B.C. The law was given in the 15th century B.C., so you have a span of a little over 500 years there. Actually, a little more, almost 600 years. When Paul says in Galatians 3 that the law came 430 years after it, he's probably talking about the period uh, uh, when Israel was in Egypt because that covenant which was ratified with Abraham was reaffirmed to Isaac, his son, and then it was given to, uh, uh, to Jacob, Isaac's son, and uh, to all the patriarchs. And then the nation of Israel went into captivity in Egypt and they came out about 15, uh, sometime in the, in the middle of the, of the 15th century. They went down to Mount Sinai and then the law was given. 430 years later, the law was given. But the interesting thing about the law is that it's preferenced by God's what I call eagle wing speech. I've talked about this before. In verse 4, God says to Israel, you yourself have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle wings and brought you to myself, caused you to come to myself. He uses a Hebrew causative sense. I dragged you in is the idea. I brought you in. Now, what's he saying? Well, I've, I've mentioned this, uh, uh, this symbol before. It's a wonderful picture of grace. I'm told that mother eagles teach their little eaglets to fly by putting them on their back and then taking them up into the air and dumping them off. And the little eagle flaps like crazy you know, as he goes into a spin. And, and the mother eagle flies underneath, picks him up, brings him back up. Try again. Until his little wings strengthen enough that he can hold himself up a little bit. So, but she's always there underneath are those, uh, those wings. And... Uh, you see that before the law is given, God reminds Israel that the relationship all along has been that of a mother eagle to her eaglet. Israel was taking her first steps in statehood, you know, and flapping like crazy and about to auger in, and God kept kept picking her up. That's grace, wonderful picture of grace. And it was given before the law. See, we tend to think of the Old Testament, and that's an unfortunate term, actually. Old Testament is not... A biblical term, that's, that's the phrase that we give. And we think of the Old Testament in terms of law. It's law. And you get to the New Testament, then it's grace. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ as though it only came through Jesus Christ. That's not what John meant at all when he made that statement. You find grace all the way through the Old Testament, as we'll see. 
the law came 430 years later, and it did not rescind, modify, change in any way the promise. Now, uh, with that in the back of your mind, let's, uh, let's go back to Galatians again. Maybe you'll understand a little better what Paul is saying. <clears throat> let me read again verse 15. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, a, a, a will and testament that you and I make, that has been duly ratified. So it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. To Abraham and to us. Because we're in Christ, you see. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. And the deal is still on. We get into it, you see, by believing it. We believe God for our initial salvation. We come to him. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. And he makes the past as though it never happened. And uh, then as we try to make our way through life and we, we begin to see the areas of disconformity to the character of Christ, we begin to ask him to change us and he begins to change us little by little. Again, you see, it's... Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And then as we face our death, we face it knowing that our destiny is sure and secure and, and we have eternal life. It's given to us. It's not something that we've earned or worked for or if we've slipped up somewhere along the line, we're not going to make it. It's, we're secure to the very end, you see. It's by his doing that we're in Christ. Now, uh, what Paul does in the verses that follow... Uh, is to raise, he anticipates the arguments of his detractors, uh, these uh, legalists that were infecting the church in, uh, in Gal- churches in Galatia. And uh, they, they would raise two questions, uh, as I'm sure you would. What then was the purpose of the law? If it's always been God's purpose to uh, save us by faith, to sanctify us by faith, uh, to bring us into uh, into ultimate salvation in heaven by faith, and why in the world did he have to lay the law on us? Seems like a like an unnecessary add-on. It was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. <clears throat> and then parenthetically, the law was put into effect through angels by mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Uh, some. Uh, Interpreter that I read just last week said that there are at least 150 interpretations of uh, of that uh, of that verse 19b and 20. Uh, it seems apropos of nothing, and actually I think it is just a, a thought that struck Paul at this point, and, and he inserted it in here parenthetically. Let me tell you what I think he meant, and then we'll go back to the main flow of his argument to the main idea. The law was given through a mediator. As a matter of fact, it was given through two mediators. The law was given to angels who gave it to Moses, and Moses gave it to the people. In other words, there's quite a distance separating God and the people. Uh, very formal, very cold, not very familiar, not very friendly. 
no one could approach the mountain, remember? If they did, they, they were struck dead. Uh, you only made that mistake once. Uh, but when God made his arrangement with Abraham, he made it uh, personally, face to face. See the difference? Sometimes uh, uh, people call me and they, uh, they're secretary. You know, they, they have something they want to ask of me. And it's their secretary that calls. And uh, my thought is, well, you know, I do that sometimes myself too to save time. But it always, I don't know, it always seems to be a lot less personal than that person calling me and, and telling me something or asking me something. And I think that's what Paul is saying. We have to remember that this original covenant was given face to face. It was a friendly sort of thing in contrast uh, to the law. And it was added. There's a reason why God had to distance himself at this point. It was added because of transgressions. In other words, the purpose of the law was to tell us what sin is. Because without the law, we wouldn't know. Without the law, our natural tendencies are so natural, we don't even know that they constitute a transgression of the law. See, that's one of the problems today. People don't know what's, what's good and true and beautiful anymore. They don't know what's right and wrong. Uh, there are very few standards and, and norms. Whatever is, is. Either 50, whatever 51% of the people uh, determine, is, you know, that's the norm. That's the standard. Or what I personally think. Uh, is the uh, is the standard? Uh, is uh, teenage sex okay? Who in the world knows? Uh, is gay good? Who knows? Everyone is at sea. They they don't have any way of knowing whether any of these natural and seemingly natural inclinations are whether they're good or, or bad. They don't know. See? And what Paul is saying is that the law was given in order to objectify sin. Let me, uh, let me show you Paul's uh, elaboration of this uh, idea. Turn back to Romans 7. Remember, Paul is speaking to a group who were more familiar with his teaching, and uh, he had given them a fuller, you know, they had more content than we have here in the book of Galatians. In the book of Romans, he elaborates a bit more on this uh, on this idea, verse 7 of chapter 7. What shall we say? Is the law sin? Is the law sinful? He's been talking about uh, grace and the relationship of grace and law in Romans. and He's concluded that the law no longer is in effect as far as our salvation is concerned. And uh, so again, he anticipates a question, is the law sinful? Is the law bad? Is there something wrong with, with the law? Paul says, certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. It's so natural to want things. It's so natural to desire your neighbor's wife. It's so natural uh, to desire to uh, destroy the reputation of your competitors. Those things come so easily to our mind that we would not know they're wrong unless the law spelled it out for us. So the law turns our natural inclinations into sin and objectifies it for us, but it actually stirs up sin in us. That's what Paul means when he goes on to say, 
Apart from the law, sin was dead. That is uh, this law that said you shall not covet. Once I was alive, apart from the law. Uh, he, he could congratulate himself for his righteousness. He's very complacent about his level of performance. But uh, when the commandment came, that is, when it came home to him, what the Tenth Commandment actually uh, meant, spring, a sin sprang to life, and I died. He was overcome with shame and discouragement and depression and guilt. He died because he realized that what he thought was a perfectly normal inclination was actually a transgression of the law. And he says, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. You understand what he's saying? The law not only tells us what's wrong, it makes us want to do wrong. That's why I I heard a story years ago about an elderly man who objected to uh, the reading of the Ten Commandments in a high school group because he said it puts so many bad ideas in uh, young folks' minds. That's exactly what the law does. When it's read to us, it just makes us want to transgress. It just stirs up sin in us. The law is like a spoon that's inserted into a into a glass that has sediment in the bottom and it stirs up all that awfulness in us. As a matter of fact, as C.S. Lewis puts it, no one knows how bad they are until they try to be good. And we've all had that experience of, of, of looking at the law, which in effect is looking into the face of God because the law is the pure expression of the character of God and blanching. And then wanting to do it, although we know it's, we know it's wrong. That's the function of the law. See, it, 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 it reveals sin. And then it shows us how sinful we really are. The, the law was never intended to make us good. Never. It never made anyone good. As Paul puts it in another place, the, the problem is not the law. The law is good and perfect and just. It's a pure expression of the character of God. The problem is me. As, as that immortal old uh, uh, philosopher Possum uh, Pogo puts it, I have sins that I haven't even thought of yet. It, it, it manifests what I'm really like, you see. But it can't cure me. can't do anything for me. It just makes me look bad. As Paul puts it in another place, the problem with the law is that uh, it's weak through the flesh. The law is a perfectly good instrument. Problem's not the law, problem's me. I mentioned a few years ago an experience I had when I was working with Young Life uh, uh, back, I was in college at the time, leading a Young Life club, and I went up to uh, Star Ranch to one of the Young Life camps during the summertime, and uh, they have a, uh, had a cook, he's retired now, his name is Goldbrick, and uh, he, he used to put on these lavish spreads for the kids, and one feature of every week was a big barbecue, and he barbecued halves of chicken, and and uh, I was standing in line waiting to get my piece of chicken, and it was, they were spread all over the grill. And, and he was turning them over with a fork, and he speared one uh, piece of chicken, and the meat was so tender, the fork just broke right through the flesh. And what popped into my head was, was Paul's statement. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is the weakness of the flesh. Uh, that, it's as though you insert a sterile fork into a, a piece of meat and it and it tears. It doesn't. It, it can't lift uh, the piece of meat. It, the flesh is weak. Spirit is is willing, 
but uh, the flesh is weak. See, that's the problem. That's why the law can't do anything for us. can't change us. We're the problem, uh, not the law. Now, let's go back to uh, Galatians again and follow on with his argument. Is the law therefore opposed? Verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that would impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. In order to make his point, he repeats himself. Being given through faith might be given to those who believe. Now, you can, again, reading between the lines, you understand the argument of those that opposed him. They're saying, well, then law and grace must be opposing principles, two mutually contradictory ideas. Paul says, no, they work hand in glove. Because what the law does is drive us to Christ. The law cannot bestow salvation. All it can do is make us aware of our need. It awakens our intense need for salvation. It's what it did in the Old Testament. The law came down from Mount Sinai, and and the individual uh, pious, believing Jew would set out to do it, and he couldn't do it. And then he would remember that there was a provision made for his failure. There was that little lamb in his flock, and he'd take that lamb, and he would lay his hands on the head of that lamb, place his whole weight on the lamb, and confess his sins, and then the lamb would be sacrificed and would take his place. The law drove him to the lamb. And uh, he knew, or she knew, that one day the lamb of God would come that would take away the sin of the world. They didn't believe that that lamb took away their sin. They knew that one day the seed of Abraham, his son, his descendant, would come who would be the lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. See, the law in the Old Testament operated precisely The same way it operates today. Not one bit different. The law drove people to Christ in order uh, to find salvation in him. Uh, Paul says, if a law had been given that would impart life, then righteousness certainly would have come through the law. But uh, men and women knew that the law didn't work. It didn't bring salvation. It didn't bestow righteousness. All it did was drive them to the one who who could. The scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Uh, The word that he uses here for a prisoner of sin only occurs in one other place in the New Testament in this particular, uh, uh, with this particular idea. It's used of uh, the disciples in closing a great catch of fish. And what uh, Paul is saying is that uh, sin just sort of gathers us all up in this net. And uh, the law does that to us. The law says you're, you're all sinful and you're all guilty and, and you all deserve to die. It's true of me and it's true of you. And uh, it drives us to find our salvation in Christ. Before this faith came, 23, before the faith that we have in Jesus Christ was fully manifest, We were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. 
Now, unfortunately, the NIV obscures the analogy that Paul is using. Uh, the word that's translated prisoners is, uh, uh, or held prisoners is actually just the word for guarded or protected. Uh, the word that's translated put in charge is the word for a pedagogue. And again in uh, verse 25, now that faith has come, we're no longer under a pedagogue, no longer under a tutor is the way the NASB translates it. Now, a pedagogue in the Greco-Roman world was a, a stern taskmaster. Uh, educator and disciplinarian. The iconographs, uh, statues, various other things in the Roman world always depict them with a rod in their hand. They taught reading, writing, arithmetic, and they taught it by the rule of a hickory stick. They were tough. But they also taught morality. Uh, they, you know, their job was to control these uh, rasty young uh, folks when they were growing up and to keep them from trashing their lives and getting in trouble and doing things that were immoral. And uh, if they didn't do it, they beat them up. That's what the rod was for. And Paul says that's exactly what the law does. It's like a harsh, tough, rough uh, tutor, pedagogue, that keeps you in line, batters you when you're out of line, keeps pointing out your flaws and your failures, and lays the lash to you when, you, when you're not getting it right. See. And what does all that do? Well, it makes you want to grow up. You, you can hardly wait till you reach the age of majority and you get rid of this fellow who's always pounding on you. And Paul says, when Christ comes into your life, that's when you grow up. That's when you become an authentic son of God. You're no longer a child under a pedagogue, so you do not need the law. That's the most remarkable statement in, in, in all the Bible, I think, or at least one of the most remarkable statements. Look at it again. The last verse of verse 25. Now that faith has come, we are not any longer under a tutor. Now, what he means by that is that not that we don't occasionally need the law to keep us straight. You know, we read the Old Testament law is still in effect. The uh, a summary of the law is uh, that simple statement, be holy because I am holy. We're not in any sense uh, under the dietary laws. Uh, both Jesus and uh, the vision that Peter <clears throat> had makes that very clear. And we're not under the ceremonial laws. Hebrews makes that very clear because Christ himself has fulfilled the priesthood and the sacrifices and the giving of the covenants and all of the, th- all of the symbols that we find in, in the Old Testament. Uh, but uh, the moral law still stands. It's, it's an expression of the character of God. And when you turn to the New Testament, you find the same thing. It's written there. Peter says, be holy because I'm holy. And Jesus started his ministry with the Sermon on the Mount, which uh, if you read carefully, you'll realize that you cannot live up to it. I cannot. You cannot. I can't be meek. I can't be gentle. I can't be peaceful. I can't hunger and thirst after righteousness. What is all that? Well, it's, it's the law. It's an expression of the character of God. It's good. It's perfect. It's just. It's right. But it doesn't make us righteous. It just makes us yearn for Christ and long for his salvation. That's why Jesus said, after giving the Sermon on the Mount, come unto me. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. You have this law laid on your back. And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let's be linked together in this. Just walk along together. And learn of me because I'm meek and humble and you'll find rest for your souls. Oh, man, what a relief it is to discover that I don't have to live under that law to know that I'm guilty and defiled. No, no, no. I'm forgiven. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far as he separated our sins from us. And uh, he wants to impart the power to, in order to do what he calls us to do. And you know, he, He's doing that. Remember what we read last week? The one who has begun a good work in you, well, he's going to perform it, he said. How, how did you begin? Did you begin by self-effort? No, you began by faith. Well, you're going to continue in that way. How do you, who's cleaning up your life? Who's purifying you? Are you purified by obedience? No, never, never. Gives us a new heart and begins to change us little by little. Doesn't hurry, doesn't tarry, he just, he just operates according to his own time schedule. Some people struggle longer than others to be rid of some of the habits that bother them. But he's at work, he's at work, both to will and to do of, of his good pleasure. All you have to do is open up your heart to him. That is amazing grace.